and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Stephen Jackman from the University of Pittsburgh talking about imaging in nephrolithiasis. Hi everyone, I am Andy Malpatra, one of the residents at the University of Pittsburgh. Today, it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Jackman, one of our endourologists and our residency program director. He will be teaching us about imaging in nephrolithiasis. Okay, well, welcome. Um, thank you, Andy, and good afternoon to all those on the East Coast. Uh, all, good morning, I guess, to everyone on the West side of the country, and good day to everybody across wherever you may be. Um, I'd certainly like to, uh, to thank the COVID group at UCSF, as well as all the contributing programs and faculty for rapidly assembling this uh, educational program to continue and improve our didactic teaching, at least uh, during a period of time where nothing is normal with respect to our, our teaching. Um, I'm pleased to participate in the program. It's been a real valuable supplement to that that we've uh, set up here at University of Pittsburgh and, and that every program I think throughout academic urology has set up uh, in response to the inability of us to have uh, the usual group meetings, discussions, rounds, um, all the all the ways that we that we teach. Um, so today, as we as as we as a nation and a world uh, attempt to chart a course back to normal, um, I hope that this shared learning experience is something we can continue in some manner. Um, it's been a bright spot in the darkness of the of the pandemic. Um, so. With that said, um, I would like to discuss imaging in nephrolithiasis, and the whole goal is to make this practical, um, really aimed at a junior resident level, things we might discuss on rounds, um, or as we're looking at, it, at some x-rays, And uh, but hopefully it'll also have enough useful tidbits that chief residents uh, will learn something as well. Um, kidney stones are such a bread and butter to us that a lot of times we don't stop and think about what we're doing, and so again, today we're gonna kind of stop, examine, Think about think about things a little bit, and, and hopefully at the end I can answer some questions. If uh, if you other have other ways to think about it, um, uh, we'll kind of talk about imaging from a urologist perspective. What's practical? How are we going to make practical treatment decisions? Um, and um, you know, since this is a, a disease that 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 is very common but presents in an infinite number of variations, um, I, I don't claim that I'm going to cover everything. Certainly not in 45 minutes. Uh, and there's lots of other ways uh, to do things. Uh, my the way I present is is by no means the only right way. Um, it's really just a collection of my experience and and that that's been taught me by my, my by my many mentors, um, specifically with respect to the kidney stone realm. That includes uh, folks like Dr. Tom Jarrett, Lou Cavusi, Tim Average, among many others. Um, and they in turn drew on the traditions of their. Uh, numerous teachers, including uh, Arthur Smith, Ralph Clayman, uh, and many others. So hopefully you'll share some of this experience and it'll, you'll find it useful in your daily practice. And um, uh, again, if you have a different way of doing it and you want to share with that with me personally, I would appreciate that. And certainly uh, sharing that with the entire urology world uh, as uh, one of the many ways we can in, uh, in our academic arenas, uh, whether it's a paper or a conference, that would, would be greatly appreciated as well. So let's get started. and make sure that my uh, my screen is working here. Uh, there we go. I do not have any relevant disclosures, unfortunately. Um, just briefly, I'm going to talk about, uh, with respect to nephrolithiasis, what do we actually want to image? What are the modalities that we have? And then we'll have a little fun and talk about, you know, some of my favorite topics. Is that really a stone in the urinary tract? Uh, and then a few pearls that uh, some of my residents had asked me to uh, possibly share. 
Um, what we want to image, of course, uh, number one is the stone, uh, but number two, of course, is the anatomy, uh, and not just the urologic anatomy, but the surrounding anatomy. And we'll talk about that in some detail. The modalities I'll discuss include the most common ones, although I'm not going to uh, go into a great detail on, on, on some of them, uh, including, uh, say, renal scans uh, that is really beyond the, the scope of this. Um, with respect to is that really a stone, we'll talk about primary signs, secondary signs, the pitfalls and the, the advantages of certain of those uh, treatment, uh, the, the, the imaging modalities. And then a couple pearls just at the end if we have time. Uh, we'll talk about stent sizing, uh, which everybody I think does differently. And, uh, and I'll talk about some of the relevant AUA guidelines to, to this uh, talk because that's where many of the questions come for in-service and uh, uh, qualifying exams for the boards are all, all come from. Um, some of the, the many of most of the pictures you've seen already and then many of the pictures that will follow come from a textbook called Imaging and Urology, which I am using with permission. Um, I have no association with this and have no benefit from this other than it's a great book that I bought a couple years ago and is, is uh, uh, possibly uh, made here from at the University of Pittsburgh uh, by a couple of folks that I, I know, but it's really great images and uh, a great way to learn really easy, a lot, a lot more pictures than words. And uh, so that's a good way to learn if, you're, if you need to know. So let's, uh, let's get started for, for real here. Um, what specifically do we want to observe when we're talking about, you know, we're imaging the stone? What do we want to observe and how are we going to describe those clinically relevant features? Uh, and the first three things, uh, location, number, and size are things that you need to describe because they're important with respect to, you know, what you're, what you're going to do next uh, with respect to treating that patient. Um, location, certainly uh, where it is uh, in, with respect to the uh, anatomy is important. For example, if you were going to do shockwave lithotripsy, if it was uh, over the, um, the, the, the mid-ureter, over the, the, the sacrum, you would not uh, see that well and you wouldn't want to do that if it was in the lower pole. Also another potential consideration for shockwave lithotripsy. Number of stones, uh, if there's lots of stones, then uh, you may want to consider a modality to treat that patient that you're going to be able to address all the stones on that side rather than just the one main stone, um, certainly to, to help them out. Um, also, if they have multiple stones, you need to put that in the back of your mind and say, hey, this is a patient I'm going to need to go back and metabolically evaluate um, because they're certainly at higher risk of, uh, of stones than somebody who just has a single stone. Um, size of stone, of course, is always important with respect to treatment uh, choice. Uh, uh, ureteroscopy and shockwave lithotripsy, less successful for the large stones, you might want to consider moving to a percutaneous procedure. Um, composition is something that we, of course, can't get exactly from imaging, um, but can be very important uh, uh, in the long run. It um, may suggest a different alternative uh, uh, treatment option. It also may suggest that you need to get some additional information, such as, hey, let's make sure we check the urine pH uh, in a, a stone that might look like a uric acid stone. Um, so uh, I'll address uh, composition and Hounsfield units a little bit uh, later when we talk about uh, CT scans. All right, so the other thing that we're imaging is not just the stone, but we're imaging the anatomy. Um, and we want to know, does the patient have a generally normal urinary tract? Or are there things that we need to know about it? Um, abnormalities that might uh, in either inhibit urine flow, increase their risk of stones, or affect your success of, of one or more of your potential procedures. Um, the other thing you want to know about is, is there obstruction? Um, and uh, if there is obstruction, you know, uh, you know, 
how much obstruction? Does it look like it's acute? Does it look chronic? Um, certainly chronic obstruction may look like a, you know, more hydronephrosis, maybe even atrophy of the kidney, things that look like they've been going on for a long time, whereas smaller amounts of hydronephrosis, a lot of stranding, even fornicial rupture might be more indicators of um, uh, acute obstruction. Uh, and I'm going to tell you right now, this is actually an MR urogram over here, and this is a normal urinary tract in case anyone's looking. Um, location, um, uh, other things that you, of course, want to know um, with respect to um, if there's obstruction, is that obstruction being caused by the stone? A lot of times we'll see obstruction where the, the, the system's obstructed, maybe there's ureteral stricture and the stone just happens to have settled there. Um, and so uh, a little bit of something to put in the back of your mind, you want to, is that obstruction really due to the stone? Um, function uh, of the kidney, uh, again, just like obstruction, or uh, is, you know, is it chronic, is there chronic problems with function, is there acute problems with function? I think the acute issues that people look at uh, include uh, things like a, a delayed nephrogram certainly indicates that there's some uh, acute decrease in function, uh, decrease in blood flow to that kidney. Uh, and again, chronic decrease in function if you have an atrophic kidney, um, a hydronephrotic blown out kidney, uh, those type of things are, uh, will, will affect your treatment modality. Do you, do, do you treat it at all? Do we just take out the kidney? Um, and then uh, very importantly, not just the urinary tract, the surrounding organs. Are they normal? Are they in normal locations? Um, do they have any implication with respect to um, a procedure that you might, might want to uh, perform? Is the spleen, uh, you know, overlying the whole back of the left kidney so that a percutaneous procedure would be difficult? Same for the liver. Other clues that you might want to look at with respect to um, uh, a kidney uh, I'm sorry, a, uh, surrounding organs, is, is, is there any clue why they're making stones? Have they had a bunch of bowel surgery? Are they missing a bunch of small bowel? Um, maybe they're uh, at risk for uh, calcium oxalate stones because of that. Do they have an ostomy, an ileostomy? Are they at risk for uric acid stones because of that? So all of these things tend to be on the CT scan, uh, which is typically what you're going to have. And so really, with respect to imaging nephrolithiasis, you're looking at everything that's related to the nephrolithiasis that might be helpful uh, on those studies. Um, some of the other anatomic variants, so getting back to the kidney, um, they could affect your, your, your decision, your stone treatment, or overall, you know, treatment of the patient. Uh, would include all sorts of things. I've just listed a few here. Uh, nephrocalcinosis is something we see in the, in the kidney stone world frequently, and that would uh, include typically medullary calcifications. We used to see on IVP, uh, you know, as each little pyramid was uh, calcified. Now you can see on this image here, you can see each of the medullary pyramids is calcified. You can see uh, kind of scattered light calcifications that you might see in medullary sponge kidney re or renal tubular ectasia, uh, or more like this particular case where you see dense calcifications, more likely uh, to be something along the lines of renal tubular acidosis, primary hyperparathyroidism. And again, you can't treat all of these stones, so you just have to figure out how, which stones do you actually need to treat and how you're going to treat them longer term. Uh, UPJ obstruction, another common thing we might see, um, that certainly will affect your treatment of the kidney stones that the patient has and something that you need to note, um, maybe a, a percutaneous approach would be better than uh, shockwave lithotripsy or ureteroscopy, which might be uh, uh, more difficult to get the stones to either pass or get to the stones with ureteroscopy. You might not even want to go back and look and see, does the patient have symptomatic UPJ obstruction? Should we actually just treat the UPJ obstruction uh, and then formally and then go back uh, while we're doing that and just take the stones out at the same time, uh, say laparoscopically or cystoscopically through the through a laparoscopic port site. Um, other things that uh, we look for variant-wise, duplicated systems, certainly always a very important uh, thing that's important to know, make sure you're in the correct ureter. Uh, if you're going to look for a stone or the correct side of the uh, collecting system, if you're doing going percutaneously, 
calocele uh, diverticulae, uh, cysts also can uh, affect uh, what you're going to do is if you see a stone in a diverticulum, of course, the question is always, is that really being, is that symptomatic? Is that what the issue is? And um, why are you going to treat that calocele diverticulum? Is it pain or do you actually need to remove the whole stone? Is it infected? Um, different treatment options would be appropriate in, in those different settings. Um, with respect to cysts, um, are they in the way? Do they cause focal hydronephrosis? Maybe that's why they're forming a, a stone because the upper pole uh, infundibulum is obstructed by a cyst. Um, also might affect your ability to get there, certainly percutaneously if there's large cysts on the posterior aspect of the kidney, uh, getting to that might be difficult. Uh, so many anatomic considerations that are part of imaging for, the, for, the, for kidney stones. Uh, and certainly the last but not least would be solitary uh, kidneys. Uh, when you've got one kidney, you gotta be a lot more careful. Um, abnormal kidneys, certainly whether it's a horseshoe kidney or a pelvic fusion kidney, um, all of these are gonna require different approaches. All right. I'm going to move on now to the uh, imaging modalities, and certainly you could almost say, well, okay, CT scan, we're done. Um, that's certainly the gold standard for uh, imaging of kidney stones, and it's probably the best with respect to looking at all the different factors I just mentioned, um, but not the only thing, and, there, and, and it does have its disadvantages. So we'll talk a little bit about what it's good for and what it's not good for. Um, but uh, as noted, it is excellent for, the, for detecting size, number, location of stones. Um, we'll talk a, a little bit more in a second about composition. Um, and that's by composition uh, and how we guess and get clues to composition um, is specifically based on the, the stone's density. And, and that's measured by Hounsfield units. Um, I first put a warning up here that in that you really need to make sure when you're measuring Hounsfield units on a CT scan that you're doing it in the most accurate possible way. You need a voxel, which is the, the full depth of the slice. It has to be filled with the stone because it still will look white on your CT scan, even if it's not filled because of the, the difference in contrast, um, but you'll, re you'll read a much lower uh, Hounsfield unit. So you really wanna pick a spot where you can see that there's stone on the slice before and the slice after the slice you're measuring. Zo I typically zoom it into the widest po you know, possible view and put the smallest possible cursor on it uh, to measure the center of the stone or the, or the point in the stone where I know there's stone on either side. And that way you're gonna get the best um, uh, or the kind of the maximal Hounsfield units number, which is what you want. Um, there's actually even been some studies doing, done that show that point Hounsfield units might be even more useful, although that's difficult to do, at least on the, our software system. Um, of course, if you're trying to do that, that means it's difficult to do for smaller stones because there may be no slice where you can get uh, uh, the stone completely within the voxel. Um, but if, even if you know that, if you still, if the stone is registering 500 Hounsfield units, for example, you'll know that it really is higher than that. Because um, typically, again, it'll always be lower if, you, if you've got volume averaging. Another couple things I wanted to mention before we start, talk a little bit more about the actual composition, things like matrix stones or indinivir stones, these are really non-calcified stones and uh, may not even show up much more than just debris on a CT scan. Indinivir stones, also known as crixivan, uh, is one of the, the HIV protease inhibitors that we used more in the past, not so much anymore. Um, but really, that's one of the, 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 cla the classic question of what stone is not visible on a CT scan, that's the answer. And that's really because it's more like a gel. Uh, that sits down at the UVJ and typically if you just flush it out and have them drink more and take a lower dose and not even stop the indenivir that you usually can stop that. Um, not so much of a problem today. Xanthine stones people talk about that are difficult to see but I've never seen one and I've been doing stones for 30 years so not sure. Um, also mixed stones of course when we're talking about composition really anything goes at that point so uh, you could have any any Hounsfield unit number almost. But here's uh, 
here's the, the at least the composition clues and you can get from pure stones or mostly pure stones. Uh, and there's a nice uh, article relatively recently from Brochon et al in the European Journal of Radiology that looks at that and, and it really has a nice graph here. I don't know if you can see it all, but the one most important thing to notice is uric acid really is quite clustered here. And they were tr looking at on different CT scanners, which do also register differently. So you have to know your scanner, but um, at least it was very consistently significantly lower than all of the other ones in the 350 to 400 pounds per unit range. Calcium oxalate stones, the most common ones we see, tend to be higher, 1,000 to 1,400. Uh, both di and monohydrate were similar, although I will tell you certainly anecdotally we see that the dihydrate, you know, crust around the denser monohydrate can look, uh, when you're measuring it, to be a little less um, dense. Calcium phosphate stones, which come in a couple of uh, different types, uh, carbonate apatite and brushite, also on that higher range, 1,000 plus often. The brushite stones really are the ones that are by far the highest. Um, and then struvite and cysteine stones are kind of in the middle, not, not nearly as low as uric acid, but, um, uh, but, but lower than the others typically, lower than the classic calcium-based stones. Um, people have tried some fancy things, dual energy or stone heterogeneity indices to see if we could get better readings. Um, unfortunately, they really weren't specific enough to get, you know, to tease out the different types of calcium stones, for example, and they're more cumbersome and not, not really clinically useful uh, on the fly like, uh, uh, like the low Hounsfield units of uric acid. And so therefore, I would say in conclusion, from a composition and a Hounsfield unit point of view, uh, it's really best for determining, is this a uric acid stone or do we think this is a primarily uric acid stone? Because that's important. That's something we can treat differently. That's something we could even try to dissolve if it's somebody that, that uh, would be uh, amenable to urinary alkalinization. Um, and the rest of the stones, basically, we're going to treat fairly similarly in general um, with a few uh, caveats, if it's a very high density stone, you're not going to want to use shockwave lithotripsy, for example. Um, so then I just broke these down, medium Hounsfield unit stones, cysteine, struvite, apatite, mixed, and then calcium oxalate and phosphate tend to be the higher ones. Okay, um, CT scan, again, as I said, good for almost everything in stones, and including the different types of uh, um, uh, anatomic variations. There's also variations in the CT scan of how you can do them. Um, we're typically talking about non-contrast CT scans, but you can get a lot more information on the anatomy if you use contrasted CT scans, delayed images, the so-called CT urogram, um, and uh, those are certainly important if you see something on the non-con scan that you need to evaluate further uh, before proceeding with stone treatment. Um, CT scan shows uh, obstruction very nicely as well and some of the secondary signs that we will talk about later um, but you can see hydronephrosis here you can see a, uh, in this case a delayed nephrogram with no uh, contrast yet into the collecting system um, so CT very good for that for function it's also good you can certainly see if the function if the parenchyma is working at all but there is a, a couple good articles that show that the parenchyma of the kidney the actual Functioning parenchymal volume of the kidney is basically the equivalent of a, a differential function on a renal scan if you could do a volumetric uh, uh, calculation of that. And certainly you can do that in your, in your mind, very, you know, at least within 10%, I would say. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's a non-contrast or a contrast scan. It just matters what is the, how much parenchyma is on each side. Um, it does not, however, work if there's acute obstruction. If the kidney's swollen and edematous, that's not going to be functioning more, of course. Um, but in, certainly in the steady state, um, uh, in any chronic situation, um, it's, going to, it's going to be very useful, at least to get a good estimate of, um, of kidney function. There are variations in the CT scan as well. Um, it's not just non-contrast and contrast. Um, you, there are low-dose CT scans in an effort to, to decrease the, uh, the uh, 
uh, risk of, uh, of radiation exposure, which I'll talk about a little bit more in a second. And certainly, again, there's contrast scans, different phases, um, and excretory phase, all with their different uses. With respect to radiation dose, as I, I said, which we, we do try to minimize that as best as we can, um, the typical radiation dose with a standard non-con CT, the usual five millimeter slices we see, um, is about eight millisieverts of an effective dose. Uh, that'll go up significantly if you get thinner and thinner slices. Um, the low dose CT scan is also typically five millimeter slices, but uh, at a lower uh, milliamperage and therefore giving you uh, effective uh, doses of, of only one to four millisieverts, uh, the one being the so-called ultra low dose CT scans. Uh, and again, I'll mention a little bit more about that in a second, but uh, CT urogram for in comparison tends to be at least 15 millisieverts. So really a lot more exposure and you do have to, when you order that, be sure that that is worth the information that you're getting. Uh, as I said, you lower the milliamperage to get that. Um, images tend to be grainy, but given the excellent contrast ratio between stones and um, soft tissue, which really a dramatic difference in Hounsfield units, um, you still can see that those stones very nicely, even though it's grainier and diagnostic accuracy has been maintained in, in every study that's been done uh, on that. Um, I would say the biggest problem that I see, the, the beware that I have here with respect to low-dose CTs is I think a large number of the ones that I order, and I'm sure that many people order, just don't get done that way. Um, if I write an order for a low-dose CT scan, that patient may go to 50 different potential imaging centers, and unless they have a protocol there, a motivated technology that actually kind of pokes it in that way, um, they end up just doing a regular non-con CT scan, and uh, they don't get the benefit of that low-dose CT scan. Um, also, patients that are obese are not really eligible for low-dose CT scans because they don't penetrate well enough and, and they do, they get too grainy and they do lose their effect, efficacy. Um, and unfortunately, that's a, a, the kind of cutoff is that is starting at a BMI of about 30, which unfortunately we see a fairly significant uh, population that does have a BMI over 30. So they're not going to benefit in the same way from a low-dose CT. Um, so talking about the disadvantages of CT, even though it is truly our best test for stones, um, and number one disadvantage as I'm going on is, is radiation. <clears throat> um, and, and not only the radiation of the single study, but um, the radiation of multiple studies, because this stone population is at risk for, for you know, repeat studies, uh, both during a single episode and then during multiple stone episodes uh, during their lifetime. Uh, so it, it would be useful to try to decrease that um, from an expense point of view, um, also, uh, uh, that's something that you have to uh, consider. It's certainly a lot more than uh, ultrasounds or KUB x-rays. Um, and uh, one other uh, minor thing I'm going to point out is the single versus multiple stones. Uh, sometimes you volume average between the stones. You can't actually tell that, that, that what you're looking at isn't just one big stone, but instead it's a, um, a big, um, uh, it's, it's actually a collection of single stones. Um, and you can almost sometimes see that better on a plain x-ray. So um, the rest of the modalities I'll go by quickly and just talk about kind of advantages and disadvantages mostly with respect to CT scan. Ultrasound, um, the advantage is of course that there's no radiation at all. It's great for serial exams. It's great for follow-up where you've got a CT scan, you know where the stone is, you know what the, how much hydro or what else you, you expect to see, and then the ultrasound looks at it and you say, is it gone, is it better? You know, um, certainly pregnant uh, patients, ultrasound's always gonna be your primary uh, consideration. Um, this isn't really talked about, imaging in children, but that's almost always going to be the choice in children as well. Um, ultrasound is more portable. It tends to be more available sometimes. Uh, you can even use it intraoperatively, which is very uh, helpful. Uh, disadvantages, though, it is technologist dependent, uh, and uh, certainly uh, we see a lot of things called an ultrasound that are totally not there and other things that are, they completely miss, uh, and I think it's not something that you can go back and look at the same way you can look at a CT or, or a KUB. 
Um, you can't see stones in the ureter very well, other than kind of at either end of the ureter. And a lot of times if something's wrong on the ultrasound, you're not quite sure what it is and you still have to get some other test to, to be more definitive. Although I would say that if it, if it, is, if it looks good, um, usually you feel pretty comfortable that the, the system's fairly normal, uh, although that's not always the case. MRI quickly, we almost never use this for stones, although it is excellent for obstruction. You can see standing columns of fluid very nicely in this, as in this, uh, this is a normal MRI urogram, but you'd see it backed up much more significantly if there were a stone. Um, the problem, and there's no radiation, of course. The problem is, of course, it's expensive. It's, it takes a long time. Usually it takes three weeks to get on the schedule, and that's not really that useful. Uh, a lot of patients have problems with claust are claustrophobic, and, and again, you're only seeing secondary signs, not the actual stones. KUB x-rays, great, quick, cheap. Uh, lots of patients we have when they come for follow-up, they just go get their KUB and then walk over to our clinic because um, they don't need an appointment. They're not operator dependent. I can look at them. I don't need the reading for them. Uh, and they have a lot lower dose. Um, they work great for, you know, larger, denser stones. Um, even in, uh, in this case, you can even see, uh, you can see that all these are separate stones here in a nice example of Steinstrasse. Uh, on CT, that might look like one long stone, uh, actually. <clears throat> And again, they're great, KUB are great, just similar to, to ultrasound, great for follow-up when you already know how many stones, what bi how big they are, how dense they are. If you know it's you know, medium-sized and dense, you're gonna be able to see it on the, uh, on the KUB for follow-up. Um, one other nice little bonus is if you can see it nicely on a KUB, you'll know it'd be, it will be there on fluoroscopy if you're looking to do either a percutaneous uh, or a shockwave lithotripsy procedure using fluoroscopy. The disadvantages, of course, are that there is still some radiation and um, from a sensitivity point of view, that the chance of actually seeing that stone goes down significantly as the size gets lower, um, being really not that great for stones that are smaller than five millimeters, but quite good uh, above that. Um, some of the other sensitivity issues, there's lots of the classically radiopaque stones that are less dense, some that we talked about on the um, CT scan, uric acid, cysteine tend to not be visible, matrix and indinavir definitely not visible. Um, it can miss stones that are overlying bones, and, it can, and there can be overlying bowel content that can get in the way. So uh, good test, but has its uh, disadvantages. Fluoroscopy, uh, an imaging modality we use all the time, really intraoperatively primarily. Um, just a couple tips that I wanted to throw in about using the lowest dose possible. Is obviously, you only want to use a minimal amount of time. The person whose foot's on the button should be the one who's doing the actual whatever they're doing so that they can minimize that time. There's always a low dose setting, so do try to choose that. Uh, and most of these machines can be set to a low frame rate as well. And um, you can set the frame rates down to really fairly ridiculously low numbers and still get adequate imaging for at least guidance of is my wire in and, and things like that. That can dramatically decrease some of that. Um, fluoroscopy safety, uh, mostly because these happen to end up on tests all the time, um, is that you want to make sure that the, the source uh, is under the table, there's less scatter, uh, and that the image intensifier, which is a part on the top, is usually as close to the patient as possible. That really, in effect, puts the source farther away from the patient and decreases the patient's uh, exposure. I wanted to throw in the IVP since it's still a great test. It's obviously very old school, um, probably only good for when your CT scanner is broken. However, there are things you can see nicely on an IVP that you wouldn't necessarily, you have to look for on another scan. Uh, and that's you know, the fact that it is obstructed. You can see that this right side is obstructed versus the left side where it's just nicely flowing through. And in this case, you can see that it's obstructed right to that point. So it is useful and certainly seeing a duplicated anatomy, um, things that sometimes you have to squint at the CT a little bit if it's a non-con CT is painfully obvious on an IVP. So great test, uh, almost never done anymore.
All right, let's get to the kind of the, is that really a stone in the urinary tract, a, a game that we were always playing with ourselves, the residents, the, the, the radiologists, the ER. Um, and again, the CT scan is certainly the best at seeing, you know, the location of the stone, i.e. is that a location that's <clears throat> consistent with uh, being in the urinary tract. Uh, and it's good because we're seeing both the stone and the anatomy. The IVP, as I said, is excellent. Everything else has a little bit of a caveat to it, but, <clears throat> but they're quite good. Um, ultrasound, classically, of course, you can, uh, you're going to see the hydronephrosis. That's probably the most sensitive thing you'll see. Um, but when you do see the stone, typically in the kidney, not so much in the ureter, you can see posterior shadowing, uh, which uh, even if you're looking for a, a ureteral stone, if they happen to have stones in the kidney, that strongly suggests that, yes, this is a patient with stones. Um, twinkle artifact is uh, what you'll see on the Doppler views. There's a, it's a linear band of disorganized, rapidly changing color, which is reported by our radiologists not infrequently when they say, well, there's a hyperechoic area, there's no shadowing, but there is a twinkle artifact, so we think it could be a, uh, a stone. Um, <clears throat> again, something that uh, clinically you may have to evaluate further. Um, ureteral jets, certainly uh, not as useful as I'd like it to be, but if you do see good, strong, frequent jets equally on both sides, that's a good thing. If you see nothing on the one side, that's a bad thing. And, you know, in between, it's hard, hard to tell. I find that ultrasound often overmeasures, at least our radiologists often measure stones as larger than, than you would think, and sometimes that leads you to conclusions you don't want. KUBs, lots of possible fakeouts based on things that are overlying uh, the uh, uh, the area where the kidney or the ureter might be, and specifically with the kidney, um, gallstones can sit right over the top of the, um, the, the renal pelvis, particularly, and fool you, tips of the ribs, uh, often the mid to lower pole. A uh, patient with an old trauma that it may have calcified or cyst with calcification can confuse things. Um, and then any overlying material, um, you know, you want to look. If there's two views, sometimes they were taken with different levels of inspiration, and you can see if that one travels. If, if there's a question, something you think is in the bowel, if it seems to travel with the kidney, then it's more likely in the kidney. And of course, if not, then it's almost certainly not in the kidney. Fake outs on a KUB in the ureter, tips of the transverse processes of the spine, uh, as well as vascular calcifications. Uh, and I listed a whole bunch here, gonadal, iliac artery, particularly pelvic plebolis. Um, some of the clues to pelvic plebolis is they tend to be a little rounder, sometimes a central lucency. Maybe, hopefully they're a little bit more lateral than you'd expect the ureter to be, uh, or a little inferior below the ischial spines is classically where we expect the UVJ to be. Although, uh, again, beware in women that have a cystocele or a man that status post-prostatectomy or someone with another anatomic abnormality, they may not be where you, the UVJ may not be where you expect. Um, <clears throat> another thing that uh, kind of a trick with the urinary tract is I've often had the radiologist read even on CT scans that there's a stone in the in the kidney and then you go back and you look and really it's if, if you follow the vessels carefully the renal artery specifically you can see that yes they, their, their aorta has a bunch of atherosclerosis the renal artery has some atherosclerosis and indeed the renal the small branches of the renal artery even have some as well so some, sometimes that can fool you. Um, but just trace them, and usually you can follow that. Um, one special uh, exception to that would be the renal artery aneurysm. I've, I've been referred at least one patient with a renal artery aneurysm for, for a shockwave lithotripsy, and uh, I would definitely not recommend that. You've got to make sure you know that that's not a stone. Another uh, nice uh, trick uh, is, the, uh, is what I call the tricky bladder stone. Um, I would tell you that if, when you get a reading in a patient, the right setting for a, for a, for a potential kidney stone or a potential... Uh, ureterolithiasis, I guess. Um, and it says, oh, the stone's passed, it's in the bladder. Most of the time that's wrong. Um, and the main reason is because if, if it passed into the bladder, then 
very first time the patient voids, it'll be gone. And so it shouldn't really be there for them to, to, to uh, be able to image. Uh, and typically where it really is, is in the intramural ureter. Uh, it's setting it, um, uh, it could be in a ureteroceal, which would be a, you know, a true anatomic variant, but usually it's more of a pseudo ureteroceal. It's a, just, just, just a swollen intramural ureter where the, where the stone is, is sitting. Um, if the patient is still being imaged, you can have them try to move the patient, see if the stone is mobile. If it is, then it is actually in the bladder, but most of the time it will not be in my experience. So quickly, uh, a couple secondary signs to think about. Um, I wanted to point out the most important secondary sign, I believe, is really the, the history and the physical and the, and, and the urine, not the, not the things on the imaging. Um, and that is, uh, you know, it's, it's always your pretest probability for a stone that makes you say, is that stone in the track? Um, if they don't have a history of physical or you know, clean urine that, that, that's a, that you think is a stone, then it probably isn't. And if they do, then it probably is just going into it. We already talked about hydronephrosis briefly. You can see peri perirenal stranding. This is a nice example of that. Um, it can go all the way down the cone of Girota, as you can see uh, on a CT scan or even an IVP. Uh, Fornicia rupture would be kind of the extreme variant of that. Um, renal edema where the kidney's swollen. It tends to be bigger and less dense than the contralateral kidney, even and well seen on certainly on a contrast scan, but definitely still well seen on a, a non-con scan. And then the, the soft tissue rim sign around the ureter. Um, some other special cases, um, you can have some localized hydronephrosis from, from calocele obstruction and just have an upper pole obstructed, for example. Uh, so in, in the possibly the, the uh, and it can be intermittent as the stone bouncing in and out of a, of a calyx. So uh, in a patient where you see, keep saying, no, it's not an obstructing stone. Well, maybe that would be the, the reason why calyceal diverticulae, uh, of course, can have stones that can cause pain uh, by intermittent obstruction of the narrow neck. So uh, we're getting to the last few minutes. So I want to move on quickly onto a couple pearls. Um, and, and one of the things we never think about, um, but always think about, we never think about why we do it in, in many ways, is, is how, how do we how do we put a stent in properly? How do we size a stent? And there's at least a hundred ways to do that. And I think everyone's learned a way, but um, we like to come up with ways sometimes that are reproducible here. And I have a number of things that we do in that, in that manner. Uh, and one of them is putting in a stent. And the first thing to think about, of course, is how do you put it? You know, what do you want? What's your objective? Um, and the objective, of course, is to have a nice pigtail in both the kidney and the renal pelvis, ideally, and one in the bladder. Uh, particularly in the bladder, you want it, you know, near the ureteral orifice. You don't want it to be going all the way across the bladder, resting on the bladder neck, crossing the midline, because that's going to increase your symptoms. You want both your coils coiled all the way to prevent migration either direction. So one of the ways that we, that probably, and one way that, that I've used for many, many years, it almost never fails unless there's some real significant anatomic abnormality, is just to take the, the number, the slight, the, the you look at the pelvic slice location for the bladder, the, the really right at the top of the prostate, and for the renal pelvis, and you just subtract those two, you'll get the millimeters distance between the two, you know, vertically at least. Um, you divide by 10 to get the centimeters, and then we typically add about two centimeters um, because that accounts for the diagonal course of the ureter as well as some of the tortuosity. If it's a real tortuous ureter, you might need to add more. And here's a, just to make it a little clearer, I can only remember things if I see it in pictures. Here's a patient we just did last week who, um, uh, uh, if you see the, the slice uh, number right at the renal pelvis, middle of pelvis is 233. The slice right at the UVJ uh, is 493. And you can see I put that right at the bottom of the bladder. These are the uh, axial corresponding images. And you just subtract 493 minus 233, you get 260 millimeters. That's 26 centimeters. Uh, and then you add about two, you put a 28 centimeter stent in and that worked well for this patient. 
Um, again, as I said, if the urine is really tortuous, big ectatic iliac artery, the patient's obese and it seems like it takes a you know, more twisting course, J-hooking to a large prostate, that can really add a couple centimeters, cystocele. So those are all things to think about. Maybe you need something longer. Um, my residents like the simpler version sometimes here where they just measure it straight from the renal pelvis down to the uh, bottom of the bladder where the UVJ would be, and that gets your, di your diagonal already. Um, the trick is really to, to, you can't get both of those in the same plane. Um, and uh, so you have to pan back and forth to find the bottom of the bladder and then memorize that location and then take it up to the renal pelvis. But you can see in this case, same patient actually, 28 centimeters works out quite well. Last couple things, and then we'll go to a few questions since it looks like it's about 145, or for our time, 1045 your time, um, uh, and uh, that's AUA guidelines. And the reason for this is because, as you know, in-service exam uh, and board exam questions are really, a, for a large uh, part, from the AUA guidelines. Um, particularly in this case, it's going to be the combined AUA uh, Endourology Society guidelines from 2016 for surgical management of stones. And I just went through these and, talk, and uh, found them, picked up the ones where imaging uh, played a significant part. Uh, and just wanted to mention those briefly because sometimes I'll actually remember the, one of the uh, 50 guidelines uh, a little bit better if I've just been thinking about it in a different way. So number one, luckily, the, the first couple guidelines are uh, related to imaging. Number one uh, guideline was clinicians uh, should obtain a non-contrast CT scan on patients prior to performing PCNL. Uh, and certainly that's a pretty, pretty straightforward. Probably in most cases, you're going to get that for most patients, unless you're, you already know pretty well what their system is like. If you've never seen them before, you usually want a, a roadmap. Uh, guideline number two was that clinicians may obtain a non-contrast CT scan to help select the best candidates for shockwave lithotripsy versus ureteroscopy. And again, that comes back to many of the things I mentioned already, the, specifically the uh, stone's location, size, density uh, would predict uh, uh, where these, particular, these two procedures might particularly be not the right procedure uh, for that patient. Guideline number three uh, was that clinicians may obtain a functional imaging study, DTPA, MAG3. Um, I would also add to that DMSA is actually the best functional study. Uh, if clinically significant loss of renal function in the involved uh, kidney or kidneys is suspected, um, or honestly, if you're trying to decide how am I going to treat this patient, because if you really think that kidney has only 10% function, maybe it's not worth even doing a major percutaneous procedure on them. Uh, and as I also mentioned, that you can usually get most of this information, at least not in an acute setting, uh, you can get it just from CT parenchymal volume. Uh, some radiology departments can probably do that for you. Ours can do that for livers, but doesn't typically do it for kidneys. Um, but a lot of it you can also do yourself just by eyeball. Guideline number six. In patients with complex stones or anatomy, clinicians may obtain additional contrast imaging if further definition of the collecting system in the ureteral anatomy is needed. Uh, and this would really, be, again, be the, the, the delayed imaging. Uh, what's, a, what's the collecting system look at? Um, some of the determination, what calyx am I going to address? And I know that that was just presented uh, actually in the last talk. There was a nice talk about surgical management of, of kidney stones. Um, and so that will be, uh, uh, that's where you'd want to get the, some better imaging of the, of the actual collecting system. Number eight guideline was a clinician should offer re-imaging to patients prior to surgery if passage of stones is suspected or if stone movement will change management. Re-imaging should focus on the region of interest and limit radiation exposure to uninvolved regions. So if a KUB or an ultrasound would be appropriate, that would be a, a great choice, um, particularly if symptoms are gone, hematuria is gone you, before you take somebody to the operating room. Although, uh, also as mentioned, I believe in the last lecture, there are certainly plenty of patients who symptoms go away, but the stone is still there. So you don't want to miss those patients either. 
All right, skipping all the way to guideline 43, shockwave lithotripsy should not be used in the patient with anatomic or functional obstruction of the collecting system or ureter distal to the stone, again, because the fragments are not going to pass. Um, I had skipped the previous guideline again, uh, I believe that where the, uh, if the Hounsfield units are, are high, you also do not want to uh, do the uh, shockwave lithotripsy, also lower pole stones, greater than uh, 10 millimeters would be another one, uh, as I've already kind of mentioned. All right, so that's it for a few little pearls. I would say thank you very much from the city of Pittsburgh, which uh, unfortunately there's only a few things we can do here. Uh, riding your bike is still okay, uh, looking out over the city and uh, still social distancing, you know, is, is a good thing. Um, luckily, uh, we are mostly resumed some of our, uh, most of our activities, although uh, uh, in a very uh, controlled fashion, and hopefully everyone else is uh, doing the same slowly and safely. Um, I thank everybody for their attention, and um, uh, I am told that uh, please make sure that you uh, share your thoughts about this, take the survey, uh, and uh, Andy now is going to collect some questions and see if I can answer some of them um, for you. Uh, thank you very much, and uh, thank you to the COVID group for allowing us to participate uh, as an institution. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Jackman, for a great talk. We have a bunch of questions from the audience. So I'll start out with uh, two questions about pregnant patients. So uh, the first one is, how reliable is the presence or absence of ureteral jets for obstruction? Um, I think the answer is not particularly reliable. Um, there's many cases where you can have both a false positive or a false negative. Um, if there's no jet, are they just dehydrated? Um, you know, that, that's certainly possible. If there, if there is a jet, it still doesn't mean that they're not at least partially obstructed. It really is not um, 100 percent, and, and, and I actually don't know all the data behind this, but uh, uh, one of our chief residents gave a great talk recently on, the, on this, and the, the, the way you actually have to figure it out is is you have to calculate the frequency of the jet compared to the other side, which I have yet to ever see an ultrasonographer, you know, spend, you know, 10, 20 minutes doing something like that uh, to really get that the clear information. So again, an ultrasound, I think really is, is a great tool for suggesting a problem. And if it's totally normal, good full jets on both sides, you feel pretty good. If there's a problem, there's no jet or diminished jets appears on one side, then the question is, how am I going to evaluate that further rather than can I hang my hat on it? Got it. In a pregnant woman who may have an obstructing stone, when, if ever, is it okay to get a low-dose CT scan? So I'm actually surprised. The answer to that is whenever the maternal fetal medicine people say it's okay. Um, I just do whatever they say. However, um, I'm surprised how frequently they will actually let us do that. Um, and if it's truly something where that's going to make a big difference, they need, they need that information to change that patient's management. They will relatively, I don't want to say frequently, it's, it's, I mean, I, I, we don't see it that often, but it, they, will, they will do it. It's, it's, it's not a problem. Um, and I think the help, the, the, the reason is if, you, if you're going to go operate on that patient, if you're going to make the commitment to take the patient in the operating room, take the stone out, rather than go change their stent every four weeks or six weeks for the next you know, five months, um, that really can be a, a helpful thing. So it's all about balancing risks. Um, you don't want to have somebody have a stent in, the stent gets obstructed, it, it, you know, it, gets, it gets stuck in there, then you're in a much bigger problem. So I'm actually a big proponent of taking the stones out if you can too, and sometimes having better imaging lets you do that. But ultrasound is so good these days that it doesn't come to the fact that we absolutely need something more very often. Got it. 
So now, uh, not about pregnant patients anymore. For a patient getting medical expulsive therapy, what imaging do you get at follow-up if they are no longer symptomatic but didn't see a stone pass? So that is a great question, and it's actually something that we're working on a manuscript right now for, and I did not set you up for that. Um, with the part of the, I, was, I was part of the STONE study, which is a randomized controlled trial of Flomax versus placebo for STONE passage, which one of the good things about that study is we had a, a CT scan at the beginning of the study and we had a CT scan at, at the end of the study at, at a month. And so we knew for sure, did they actually pass their STONE or not? And of the patients that did not pass their STONE, they, they came in the office, they said, well, I don't think, I don't know that I passed my STONE. Um, there were still 13% of them that the STONE was there who were asymptomatic. Um, and so I would tell you that you need to, you know, have an index of suspicion that they haven't, that, that there's a, a real chance that they haven't passed their stone. You don't want to miss that stone. You don't want to have a silent obstruction and the kidney dies off over the next two years. Um, but we have an advantage over, you know, that study as well in that we have um, looked at, um, you know, we look at the patient, we can look at their urine, we can examine them, we can push on their kidney. There's some other things we can get. Um, information from them um, that would uh, would help you understand. Um, and so I typically will get either an ultrasound or a KUB typically on those patients if, if I'm not convinced that they passed their stone. Um, and especially if, if there's any suggestion, any hematuria left over, oh, I have a little intermittent pain once in a while. And certainly if, the, in, if they come in in the next, you know, month or so with more pain, then you're going to re-image them in some way or another. Um, but I think the good news is uh, what we know, I think, from the um, the UK study that looked at, um, uh, at stones is that there weren't a lot of patients that got into trouble in the next 60 days that we thought passed a stone that then, that then got into trouble later on. So patients are relatively good about telling that they passed a stone. And so again, this is, becomes one of those things that you just individualize. I do not have a, to answer your question more directly, I don't have one specific plan that I use um, for every patient. If a patient has a denser stone on a CT scan and you plan to follow it, do you depend on the scout film from the CT scan or routinely order a formal KUB at the time of presentation to decide if it's radio opaque and can be followed with KUB? So in the past, CT scan scout films were not that good and you really, they, they were actually considerably worse than the KUB x-ray. Um, and so it was hard, sometimes hard to be sure that you could see it well. Now, I think on the modern scanners, 64 slice plus scanners, the scouts are actually quite good. Um, so if I can see it on a scout, then I will definitely go ahead and follow on a KUB. You, there's way, trick ways to see it on a scout. Even if you're not sure you do, you can use the scout line mode. You can find the axial image where that stone is and you can correlate pretty well. And you're like, oh yeah, that spot on the scout is the stone now in retrospect when I look at it. So. There are ways to find it on that scout uh, with a little extra help. And so I would, I would say that, yes, I would, om I would rarely get a follow-up CT on anybody with a stone that's five millimeters or more that's, you know, denser than 700, you know, certainly, or, or more Hounsfield units. That's something I think I ought to be able to see on a KUB, and I would start with that. Um, if it is a stone that I think is a uric acid stone, for example, the, the classic 350, you know, Hounsfield unit stones, then I would not start with a KUB. And those folks, typically we'd start with an ultrasound, did the hydro go away, and then, you know, look more into the, you know, did the, did the pain go away, did the blood go away from the urine, you know, were they well alkalinized, those types of things to help you understand is the, is the stone really gone. Got it. 
How does foreign rupture or perinephric stranding in an otherwise stable patient change your decision-making about stenting them? Not at all. Um, they're just, you know, evidence of obstruction, and we know this patient was obstructed because they had pain. Um, there's no evidence that in a normal standard patient with sterile urine, certainly up in the kidney, um, that there's any reason why they would have um, more chance of infection or, you know, anything else worse going on. Um, and we know that patients that have, you know, renal trauma where there's, you know, terrible extravasation, not just a little bit of fornicial rupture, you know, a little squirt, but, but bad extravasation, they will heal. So uh, I would say I would definitely not instrument those patients just for that reason. Now, again, if it's a big stone, you know, you're going to go to the OR, you know, anyway to take care of it and they're in pain, then certainly that's a good reason to, to stent them. But the, the fact that there's just a lot of stranding or the fornicular rupture in and of itself does not change my uh, thought process at all. Got it. And last question, after your ureteroscopy for renal stones and ureteral stones, what is your strategy for post-operative imaging for follow-up? So assuming that I comfortable, I've got, I've I visualized the stones, I took the stones out, the system was completely clean, and, the, and my residents can tell, Andy can tell you that uh, it, uh, I'm pretty neurotic about going back to the kidney and making sure that we remove as much as we possibly can that's, you know, anything that's bigger than just dust that's not going to pass. Um, so I typically feel pretty comfortable about that. I'll usually put them then on a, a standard, you know, surveillance regimen like I would have for most of my patients. Um, long-term with respect to part of their, their normal medical management. So we'd bring them into their kidney stone clinic. We'd start working on figuring out what was their stone made out of, how do we prevent them from having stones in the future, and then kind of surveil them, usually with a KUB or an ultrasound, depending on uh, the patient, the age, uh, and um, what kind of stones they made, where, whether I expect to, see, expect to see them. The uh, exception to that is I do make sure I get a single ultrasound um, in that as the first follow-up modality in most patients that I've done any type of, of manipulation, ureteroscopy typically, uh, where they theoretically could be at risk for a stricture, um, because I want to know not only that there's no stone there, but there's no hydronephrosis there. After that, then it could be typically ultrasounds or KUBs as is easier and or more likely to be successful for that individual patient. Got it. And uh, one more question, we'll let you get on your way. Um, does contrast-enhanced ultrasound have any role in imaging stones? Um, I would I do, we have not used it for that, and it certainly is a wonderful tool for looking at renal masses that you want to know if they are vascular or not in patients that have problems with a reason that they cannot have intravascular contrast for either CT or MRI. Um, I have not used them for kidney stones at all. Um, they're a little, it's a little specialized. Um, and I think probably really all the information that you need is going to be on a regular ultrasound, um, you know, with maybe Doppler to look at, uh, even things like resistive indices with respect to, uh, you know, is the kidney not, you know, getting much blood flow on that side because of the, you know, because it's obstructed and or looking at that twinkle artifact. Um, however, um, I, I don't think contrast is going to add much to that. Got it. But I don't blame Thank you, you again, Dr. Jackman. Uh, the answers to the remaining questions will be posted on the website. All right. Well, thank you all very much and uh, enjoy the rest of your day and uh, everybody stay safe. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.